A physician and psychologist by the name of Leonard Sachs asked this question. He said, which factor measured when a child is 11 years of age is the best predictor of happiness and life satisfaction when their child has become a young adult? The answer, according to all the latest research, is self-control. And he's not alone in this. Richard Nesbitt, um, the University of Michigan professor of social psychology, considered one of the world's leading authorities on intelligence, says that he'd rather have his son be high in self-control than intelligence. Self-control is key to a well-functioning life because our brain makes us easily susceptible to all sorts of influences. So it's not a surprise that 2,000 years before Leonard Sachs and Richard Nesbitt ever existed, that the Holy Spirit guided the Apostle Paul to add self-control to that list of the fruit of the Spirit. We're ending a journey this morning that we actually began on the Friday night of Solemn Assembly when we were encouraged through prophetic insight from what God had been sharing that Rexdale is being called by God to be a holy orchard bearing fruit for God. We took some time in March looking at John chapter 15 to get some sense of how we bear fruit not by our own effort but by abiding in Jesus the vine. And then after Easter, we started this series and we looked successively at love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and now we've come into self-control. So what exactly is self-control? The Greek word that is translated self-control is the word ekratia, which comes from the root word kratos, which means power. We get words like autocratic from from that same idea. It basically means power over self or self-mastery. The antonym of it is akrasia, means also built around the word kratos, means no power overall. It is exactly this dimension of self-control that the Apostle Paul writes, thinks about when he writes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. It's ultimately an issue of boundaries. It involves saying no to certain things. It involves saying not now to certain things. And it involves saying enough to certain things. No, not now, and enough is the everyday vocabulary of this fruit of self-control. It's easy to understand. Why is it so important for us? There's a beautiful image in the Old Testament that underlines this important. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In ancient biblical times, cities had walls, and the walls of the city were some of their major protection, their main protection. And they were massive. Archaeological excavations have shown that the walls of the city of Nineveh, capital of the ancient Assyrian civilization, was wide enough to have three chariots run side by side. And Babylonian walls, I'm told, could have six chariots at a time. There's even a story in the Old Testament about Nehemiah, Israel's great leader, who when he was cupbearer to the king of Persia, was so exercised in his spirit that the walls of Jerusalem, of the people gone back in exile, was broken down and burnt. And so he took a great risk and left home and went all the way back to rebuild the walls of that city. Today in the sculpture that we live in, cities without walls are not a relevant metaphor at all. But the principle is still exactly the same. You know, God doesn't dwell anymore in a particular city called Jerusalem or a particular temple. God dwells in us individually as his followers and together as the body of Christ. But the principle is still the same. Without self-control, we are left unprotected as much as a city in those days was left unprotected without walls. So no, not now and enough are words that still make for freedom inside our cities where God lives. That's why Second Peter 
The Apostle Paul says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Now, it, it's interesting, right away you'll notice the, what may seem like a contradiction. On the one hand, these are all the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that is producing self-control in us. On the other hand, we are told to make every effort to add self-control. So, how does this thing work? We've gone back to that every week, haven't we? What did we learn in John chapter 15? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it is the work of the Spirit. I am the vine, you are the branches. The branch has to abide in the vine. So that the fruit bearing power of the vine will then express itself through the branches. So the focus of the branches is not on fruit bearing. The focus on the branches is on maintaining that organic unity. So the effort that is involved is this effort of abiding in Christ. And we've learned that it involves two things. Through the word and through prayer. So the spirit does his work. Now, for each of these fruit, I've been trying to give you some scripture as well. It's to reinforce that principle we learned a couple of years ago when we were doing the Living is Called People in a Driven World series. When I introduced you the idea of smooth stones. They're just a metaphor for portions of scripture that are relevant to a particular issue in life that we are wrestling with, that has become so internalized in us, that it becomes immediately accessible to us in the heat of the battle, and we can uh, mobilize it right away. In this. As I walk through this message, I want to focus on a couple of areas that are most commonly widespread when it comes to lack of self-control. And I'm going to give you some smooth stones along the way, as I've been doing for every one of them. So the effort that we have to make in adding self-control or any of the other fruit of the Spirit for that matter is the effort of internalizing these smooth stones. How about the Spirit part of it? Let me tell you a story. We're in baseball season again and R.A. Dickey is one of the Blue Jays pitchers. In 2012 he won the Cy Young Award which is the award for the best pitcher for that year. What you may not know is that he almost ended his career before it got started. In 1996, he was the top draft choice of the Texas Rangers, and they offered him a contract for $810,000, probably a big amount in those days. The only thing he had to do was to pass a physical. What Dickey did not know was that the physical exam had revealed there was something wrong with his right arm. So as he came to the training camp, he was a committed Christian, and so he prayed, and he thanked God. He said, thank you, Lord, for all your blessings and for helping me get this far. Shortly after that prayer, his agent called him into a meeting with uh, some guy named Melvin, who I guess was one of the Texas Rangers big wigs, and he said to him, we're going to retract our offer. We think there's something wrong with your elbow. Dickie writes this, I tried to take in those words for a second or two. We are going to retract our offer. This is what he says. He says, I don't feel devastation or even anger. I feel rage, complete rage. It feels as if it starts in my toes and blasts upward through my body like a tsunami into my guts and right up through the top of my head. I want to make sure he knows that he has matter-of-factly dropped this atomic bomb on my baseball career, on my life. But as if there's a strong hand from my shoulder holding me back, giving me pause. In that instant, I have self-control that wasn't there a moment earlier. I hear a voice, relax, I've got you. Relax, R.A., it's okay, I've got you. The voice is the Holy Spirit. I was just talking to God in prayer, and now he's talking back, giving me a composure that could not have come from anywhere else. The tsunami passes, I'm crushed by Doug Melvin's words, but I'm going, not going to do anything stupid. I've got you. See how the Holy Spirit... What effort here? No effort at all. 
but there was also the effort that went into the kind of person that he was at this particular time. And so this adding, making every effort is the smooth stones part of it, the scriptures that help us to abide in Christ. And his part is invite him in. <laughs> what did we learn on Pentecost Sunday? Holy Spirit come, Holy Spirit lead, Holy Spirit help. That's those two things work together. Alright, where do we get started with the subject of self-control? The Bible tells us where to get started. James chapter 3. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. So anyone who can control their tongue, he says, is able to control everything in their life. So obviously that's the place we have to start. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. Setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Then he goes on to say, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and curse. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? And for anybody who thinks that we don't have a problem in this area, listen to Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. He's the author of a book called Words That Heal, Words That Hurt. And he preaches all over, speaks all over North America to audiences, speaking about uh, the powerful effects often negative of the tongue. And he often almost always asks his audiences if any one of you has gone 24 hours without saying something negative to somebody. <laughs> or unkind words. He said invariably a very few people raise their hands. Many of them break out into nervous laughter and many of them say nothing. I have that. Telushkin writes, Those who can't answer yes must recognize that you have a serious problem. If you can't go 24 hours without drinking liquor, you're addicted to alcohol. If you can't go 24 hours without smoking, you're addicted to nicotine. So if you can't go 24 hours without saying unkind words about others, then you've lost control over your tongue. Now, why does James use such strong language that is, that is fueled by the very fires of hell itself? I, I think because it destroys relationships. That's what James talks about, right? He says people are made in the image of God and you destroy them. Human beings are the apex of God's creation. And therefore they are the target of the enemy. And so when through our words which have power to destroy people and relationships, we are just uh, working hand in glove with the enemy's uh, strategies. That's, that's why I think James uses such long language for it. You know, you've heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Nothing could be further from the truth. I have this person's permission to say this. Uh, in, on one occasion when I was doing some premarital counseling, I often talk about family backgrounds. And this poor gal, tears in her eyes, said, she said, my dad said to me, you'll never be able to hang on to a husband. Can you imagine the devastating power of words like that spoken by a father? Or anybody has significance for that matter. They have incredible power. Sometimes words have the power to alienate whole groups of people. You know, down south of the border, while Trump was making his unexpected surge to the presidential nomination, at one point, he casually dismissed New York City with his famous New York values. He alienated an entire city with three words. And how about gossip? The power of gossip. Let me tell you this story. 
Michelle and her co-worker Sharon were in a restaurant having lunch and before heading back to work they went to the powder room to get ready and their small talk slowly turned into office talk and Michelle began sharing with her friend Sharon who really bugs her at work and kind of launched into a two-minute tirade about a, a co-worker named Beth and she was just getting ready to share even more information when one of the stalls opened and Beth walked up. Her face completely red and angry. As soon as their eyes locked, she just left and ran and ran out. When they got back to the office, Beth never came back to the office that day. The next morning, uh, Michelle heard through the grapevine that she had quit. And while most people were happy because she had quit, because she was obviously not liked, Michelle, of course, was dying on the inside because of what she said. She tried to phone her, no response. She sent letters to her, no response. And she said the worst of it was she said she was not a believer and Michelle was. I'm sure if we took time right now to stop and ask how many of us have had these kind of things happen to us where we have said words that have hurt people, we could be here for another hour. Every one of us has this struggle in this particular area. No wonder he says start at this particular point. Start with the area of self-control in the tongue. So what's a smooth stone? What are some portions of scripture? There are many. I come across them all the time. So in your reading through the scriptures, if you have a problem in this area, and probably there's nobody that does according to, doesn't have a problem in this area, according to James, look for those portions of God's word that will function like those smooth stones. This is the make every effort part of it, folks. You cannot control your tongue by trying to control your tongue. That's the point. You, you do it by abiding in Christ through the word. Here are a couple that help me. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk Notice, It doesn't say Some translations say Let no corrupt talk As if you're talking about profanity But I've checked it with people Who know Greek much better than I And most likely the context is right It says let no corrupting talk In other words The effect that it has on other people And look what it says here But only such as is good for building up As it fits the occasion That it may give grace to those who hear Three, three things you need to think about <laughs> If you remember this verse, if you memorize it, it will help you do three things. Is what I'm going to say good for the other person? Is this the right place and time to say it? And will it be gracious? I mean, how much would our tongues change if we just remembered this one verse and asked those three questions? Uh, Yeah, exactly. And then this this one that, that helps me, especially for those of us who are in leadership, whether in the home or in the church. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. In other words, rulers who go about trying to get their way by shouting are actually no better than any fools. But wise, carefully spoken words are incredibly powerful to accomplish your purposes. That's another portion of scripture that I'm trying to memorize for myself. So those are two portions of the smooth stones that can help. Now the second area that I've chosen that where we need widespread self-control is in the area of the media. Television, Netflix, YouTube streaming video, all other kinds of media, add them on. This is an area that's out of control in most of our lives. And so I want to begin by looking at a portion of scripture that I think speaks to this. Psalm 101 verses 1 to 4. I will sing of the steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. So he will worship God first. He will also meditate on God's word on the way that is blameless. Or when will you come to me? And then I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. The hardest place to walk with integrity, my brothers and sisters, is right in your home amongst those who are closest to you. 
a life of worship and a life of meditation expresses itself in integrity and then he goes on to explain it I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless it will be hard put to find an adjective that is more appropriate to media by and large than worthless worthless doesn't necessarily mean bad doesn't necessarily mean immorally bad you see by calling it worthless, he focuses our attention on the right question. That when it comes to media consumption of all kinds, our tendency is to ask, what's wrong with this? But he's saying, what's worthy about this? Is the question we should be asking. Is this worth anything? And notice what he says here. I will hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. This word, Hebrew word translated cling is exactly the same word in Genesis chapter 2 when it talks about for this a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's covenantal language. That's what it is. That's what the Hebrew scholars tell me. Genesis 2 is covenantal language. It, it's, it's a husband-wife relationship that is sealed with the sexual union. That's clinging in the holy sense. He says that's what this kind of media has the power to do. It has the power to cling and defile me. The very week in which I was preparing the sermon, and actually it was a few weeks ago, although I've been rehearsing it, because uh, last night we hadn't come back from assembly yet, and so I recorded the sermon. That particular week, for about an hour, Sham and I watched a, a, a mystery show that I like to watch with her, and done it before. That night, I just didn't feel good. You know, and I've decided that's one thing I can do without in my life. Uh, there's that sense of defilement that comes, even though you weren't thinking of it. He said, it will not cling to me. I don't want to come anywhere close to me. <laughs> and uh, for those of you know that progressive desensitization is what can take place. Uh, here's another book that I came across. Uh, Virtually You, a new book in 2011, written by Stanford psychiatrist Dr. Elias, provides a sober warning about how our use of the internet is making us more angry, selfish, and impatient. All the opposite of self-control. Elias argues that the time we spend on the internet doesn't just cause us to have online alter egos, it also changes our character, who we are and how we relate to others. Normally we mature and then continue to grow by learning to delay gratification, which is probably the foundational discipline in life, which is what self-control is. Live within a moral framework and respect other people. Maturity also involves learning to control our aggressive impulses, self-control. But look what he says. But in the wild west of the internet, the restraint and maturity of our superego, which is their word for conscience, has gone AWOL. The anonymous, narcissistic culture of the new social media produces ordinary, everyday viciousness. We like to tell ourselves that we can move nimbly from the impersonal, mean-spirited internet world back to our real-world relationships. However, it isn't easy to compartmentalize the two worlds. More and more, we are starting to resemble our online personas. That's scary, folks. It does cling if we're not careful. And, and even and listen, and even if there are those few people who can claim with validity, no, I'm not really affected by, by my media. I need to ask you another question. It is a massive time stealer in our lives. Many, many times I hear people say, well, I just don't, I don't have the time to read, I don't have the time to pray. Well, some people may be true. But let me ask you a question. Are you courageous enough to do an experiment? Keep track of how much time you actually spend on media that you don't need to. And see whether you really have time or you don't have time. It's not accidental that First Peter connects these. 
He says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. <laughs> you ever wondered why we need to be self-controlled and come to sober-minded? Yes, otherwise you wouldn't be praying wisely. But self-control and prayers, I think a lot of it has to do with redeeming time for it. Uh, choosing the kind of time, managing our time so we come alert into the presence of God. Or alert on a Sunday morning. Not having stayed up till 2 o'clock in the morning Saturday night by choice. Self-control and prayer and worship are related in that way. So what's a good smooth stone for this? This is the best one. No question. Philippians 4.8 Finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's any worthy praise, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What would happen if before we entered into our media time, we were to read this scripture? What if you said, okay God, I need now to help you help me think of what is good, what is noble, what is pure, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. And then we say, Holy Spirit come, <laughs> Holy Spirit lead, Holy Spirit help. Do you think it will affect what we choose to watch? Huh? I don't see how it can't. You may end up gloriously saying, wonderful, the Holy Spirit gives me freedom to do it. But let's at least do the effort. This is where the effort comes. And then the self-control comes from Alright, now listen, there's so many more areas we can talk about when it comes to self-control. In the, in the interest of time, I obviously can't go through every one of them. I haven't said anything about food, um, the whole issue of money and buying things, the sexual dimension of our lives. Every one of these dimensions requires self-control. But I'm trying to get the principle to you, and I started in the two most widespread areas for us. What I want to do is to focus a little bit now on the motivation. We always come back to the why. If we know the why, the how, then we will get on with the task. All right. I want to go to another sports story. This time I want to move from, uh, go- from uh, baseball to golf. Mm-hmm. Nick Faldo was a British golfer. For 97 weeks, uh, I think in the 80s, I'm not sure exactly when, he was considered the top, he had number one rating. He has won six majors. I think only one other European has won more, more than six majors. But his personal life was totally in shambles. Three marriages, two affairs... And all three of his children were born in the second marriage. And he had the birth time of every one of his kids induced. So it would not clash with his golf. What allows a man to be so unbelievably self-controlled? Because you do require self-control and discipline to play golf. (laughs) And have a personal life so completely out of control. The issue is, I've said to you over and over again, it's not a discipline problem, it's a desire problem. Nick Faldo got hooked on golf at the age of 14 quite unexpectedly. He says, Faldo became hooked on golf at the age of 14, having never even picked up a golf club himself, watching Jack Nicklaus play the 1972 Masters on his parents' new color television, his very first exposure to the game. Faldo describes his late discovery of golf enthusiastically saying that he loved school until golf came along, after which the only thing he was interested in was getting out of the gate as quickly as possible and going to the golf course. It wasn't discipline. He had the discipline. What happened was a completely unexpected, uninitiated, massive love affair with this game called golf. And the discipline came like no problem at all. But here's the, so this goes back to what we learned about the expulsive power of a competing affection. Our fundamental problem is never discipline. It is always desire. But here's the key thing, it has to be the right kind of desire. His desire for golf didn't change his lack of desire for his marriage. So while it illustrates the principle, 
It does drive home one more point. We have to have the right kind of desire if it's going to spill over into every other desire. And my brothers and sisters, there is only one desire which if starts dominating you will master every other desire in your life. And that is satisfaction in Jesus. No, not enough and not now are all words related to satisfaction, right? No, I'm already satisfied. Not now, I'm already satisfied. Enough, I'm already satisfied. It's an issue of satisfaction. And that's why we come back to abiding in Jesus. That's why Jesus invites us. Isaiah 55, you know, you know, we've been living in this verse one way or another for as long as you've had me here in the pulpit, right? Because I have. My life is lived in, these, in this chapter. Come everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what which, uh, which is not bread? And, why, and your labor for what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. That's the invitation. You don't labor for what does not satisfy. Let me feed you. I'll feed your soul. I'll make, I'll work satisfaction in the deepest core of your being and then you will be appropriately satisfied in everything else. That's the invitation. What is the response? Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. That's what we're doing right now, folks. Beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. There it is. My soul will be satisfied. (laughs) His soul was dry. And now his soul is satisfied. As with the fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you. So the promise of Isaiah 55 is being lived out. When I remember you upon my bed. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So yes, Lord, I am thirsty. My soul is parched. My body longs for you in a dry and a thirsty land. So I'm going to listen to your invitation. I'm going to come and let you satisfy my soul. And I will be satisfied. And when I am, he said, I will cling to you. There's the same word clinging again, folks. Remember what he said earlier on? I will not let the deeds of worthless men cling to me. I'm going to cling to something else instead. <laughs> Though this is a covenantal relationship with which Jesus binds himself to us. <laughs> And we bind ourselves to Jesus. That's what I'm going to cling to. And you know, it is, a, it is an upward spiral. <laughs> I am dry and thirsty. I seek you. I find you. You feed my soul. I'm satisfied. And now I cling to you. And in clinging to you, I get hungry for you more, all the more again. You keep feeding me. And this cycle keeps going upward. An old hymn captured it beautifully. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feed upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead, and thirst from thee our souls to fill. This is what they're talking about. And and all of it is... And by the way, I love this last verse. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. (laughs) It's a beautiful picture. Even in this whole exercise of thirsting after God, and clinging on to Him... The, the, what enables us to cling on to him is because he's got his arm around us. <laughs> My soul clings to you, but it's your right hand that upholds me. So even as we are attempting to cling on to him, he's got his arms wrapped around us, bringing us close to him. That's covenant love that is working. 
The satisfaction is the nearness to Jesus. That's the essence of this. And this is, and he calls this a blessed life. Psalm 65 verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your course. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. I heard a beautiful testimony from me. Satisfaction in the midst of all kinds of difficulties. Because she came back to Jesus. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Folks, holiness deep down within is what will satisfy us. Because holiness is wholeness. It is related to the Hebrew word shalom, which is peace. Every part of us connecting to every other part properly. That's the satisfaction that he worked within us. And I want to draw this sermon to a close in perhaps a way that was unexpected. Um... There might be people here, maybe one or two or three, maybe even long, I don't know how many of you, who either because of a single act, one unwise choice sometimes, lack of self-control, or maybe a pattern of self-control, have messed up your lives. And your lives are full of regret. And you wish you could start all over again. I won't tell you a story in the Bible. You can read it in the book of Judges. His name is Samson. When Samson was born, his parents dedicated him to God to be a Nazarite. And a Nazarite was one who would be dedicated his entire life to God. And amongst other things, he would never drink strong drink. And he would never cut his hair. There were signs of his dedication to God. To be set apart for God. Samson's actual life was the exact opposite. His life was anything but dedicated to God. It was a life that was completely out of control. An adolescent mind in an adult body was Samson. He was, first of all, he was profane. And profanity there doesn't mean cursing. It means taking holy things and treating them lightly. The man couldn't be serious about sacred things. He played foolish little pranks on people. He was, uh, even upon his parents, he tricked them in one time. And he was completely out of control where women were concerned. And even when his, and his hair, by the way, the strength wasn't actually in the hair. It was symbolic. And finally he got involved with a Philistine woman named Delilah and they were the enemies of Israel at that time and even there you should if you read just that story how she finally got the secret out of him he got closer and closer he was playing games all the time thinking he was he was living on the edge thinking he was completely in control when he didn't know that one by one little by little his control was being eroded until finally he gave away his secret his head was shaved Philistines captured him blinded him and then finally near the end of his life he breathes a pathetic prayer to God. He's although it's serious, uh, because they were making fun of him and enjoying sport through his strength. And he pulled down the pillars of the temple, and many, many people died at that time. He said, "Well, how's that very hopeful?" I thought he said it was going to be hopeful. It's hopeful because in that same chapter in Hebrews that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, looking at faithfulness, guess who shows up? And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah. What in the world is Samson doing in this list? I don't know. It doesn't tell me how he got there. It just says he got there. Maybe that tiny little modicum of faith, that last little desperate clinging to God, was all that God wanted to put his arms right around Samson. And say, your soul is after me, I come you to myself. Listen, that's why I said there's so much hope. There's nobody here. It doesn't matter where you're at. Maybe you've never come to Jesus. Maybe you never took that step that May Samson has. And your out of control life can come back into control. As you come to him for the first time. Because all of your lack of self-control, all the times you didn't say no, not now or enough, is not because you didn't have discipline. You just didn't have the right satisfaction. And that, that's what Jesus invites us to.
So this will be a wonderful day as we celebrate these elements. Feeding upon Jesus, which is another way of coming to Him. This might be the day for you to do that. And for those of you who have done that uh, before, but like may have been away from God, you need to come back. Today may be a great day. And for those of us who are close to Him, every one of us has problems in the area of control. And maybe this particular week has not been good for you. Well, come. He's inviting you. If you're thirsty, come. If you're hungry, come. I will feed your soul. And you will be satisfied. And you will cling to me. And I will put my arm around you. And bring you to myself. This is the secret not only of self-control, but of all the fruit of the Spirit, right? Let's pray together. Thank you for this invitation to a blessed life. Blessed is the man or the woman whom you choose. And you've chosen us. We are here. Really here. We thought we came here just by our choice. But we are here because you have drawn us to ourselves. Blessed is the man or that woman that you choose to draw near. To dwell in your courts. And you have promised to satisfy us with the good things of your house. Of your holy temple. We have come into your temple. We have gazed upon your power and your glory. We have celebrated your loving kindness. And our soul is being satisfied. And so Lord we come. We come in response to your invitation. We don't want to spend our money on what is not bread. And our labor on what does not satisfy. We want to be diligent. We want to listen to you. We want our souls to live. So feed us Lord we pray. In Jesus name. What are you going to do? What are we going to do? What am I going to do to keep bearing fruit? The series is over. Somewhere along the way you've been touched. I know that. One or more of the fruit of the Spirit has spoken specifically to you. Either more of what you already have, more of what you're already bearing, or a desire for something that's completely absent. My blessing for you is what I long for for myself. May the Spirit who will bear that fruit do His work of reminding. May the Spirit who energizes the Word bring smooth stones to your attention. And may the Spirit who hears your prayer come, lead, and help you. Go in Jesus' name.